In Galatians chapter 3 and 4, Paul has been laying out a series of theological arguments to the Galatians, an attempt to try to encourage them to, to, to not go back to trying to live by a works-based salvation. He's been telling them time and time again, teaching them in different ways that the only way to be born again, to be made right before God, is by placing your faith in the completed work of Jesus Christ, not through your own personal works. And he begins to warn them over and over again. He says, look, if you, if you try to return to your works to maintain a right standing before God, your own personal goodness, your own obedience to the law, he says, all you do is fall into the same slavery that, that God had originally saved you out of. You're just returning to it once again. And so he pleads with them. We saw this last week. He pleads with them. Don't live in slavery. Live in freedom. He goes, follow my example of what it looks like to live a life of grace. Now, when he gets done with this section, this is the sec second of two sections in the book of Galatians. First section was in chapter 1 and 2. That was the personal section. Paul shares a whole lot about himself, his apostleship. Chapter 3 and 4 was the theological section. We're finishing up that right now. And the next section will be the application section. And so now at the end, here's how he chooses to sum up this theological section. He ends with an illustration. He ends with an illustration. Now, as a pastor, your pastor, I understand how helpful this can be. Uh, there are some times that I spend so much time trying to explain a theological concept, idea, as clearly or as simply as I can convey it. But still, some of you, and I love you dearly, and maybe it's because of my explanation. Maybe it's not as easy as I think it's going to be. Some of you, I could tell, is just not connecting. Uh, I explain it. I could tell by the glossed over looks. I could tell by the fidgeting. I could tell by the ups and downsies. I, I, I could tell by the eyes rolling back in the head. Uh, I could tell all of these things. I could tell by you breaking open a picnic basket, eating a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. I could tell I'm not connecting with you at this particular point. So what I try to do is bring in the illustration. So I try to give an, a simple illustration that will clearly explain a very complex theological truth. And, and when I know that I did it right, here's the whole point of the illustration. You should never have to explain the illustration. It explains itself. It takes this very deep theological truth, explains it. Once you explain the illustration, you just give the illustration, everyone's like, oh, Eureka. I got it. I understand it. I, I know exactly what he's doing. So Paul understands the need for illustration sometime after giving all of this deep theological teaching. The problem with Paul, and I'm not bitter or anything, it's just that Paul can't do anything simple. Right? And so for Paul, I mean, remember even, even Peter's writing, I was talking about this this last week, Peter goes, hey, you know, Paul writes a lot of really great things. Some things are really hard to understand. That's, that's Peter that says that about Paul's writing. So if his writing is difficult, guess what? His illustrations are difficult. I would love to be able to just give you the illustration, walk off, and be done. But now, Paul, because of the difficulty in which he writes, i got to spend the rest of the sermon explaining an illustration that's supposed to explain something that he's been talking about for the last two chapters. Amen? Sounds exciting. Let's get into this. And so, uh, so here's what we're going to do. I'm going to tell you the illustration, explain the illustration, and then try to apply it as Paul applies it uh, here this morning. Uh, but before we do, I, I want to show you how he addresses the group of people, those Galatians that he's writing to. Look at verse 1 for a second. He says, he says, tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? So he's writing to the Galatian believers. He's writing to the Judaizers as well, a group of false teachers who's infiltrated the church. And he says, tell me this. He goes, you who desire to live under the law. Now, 
Uh, He's not saying, and I want to make sure we're clear on this from the very beginning, he is not saying, you who desire to obey the law. He's not reprimanding people for wanting to obey the commands of God. Every believer in Jesus Christ is given a new heart and a new spirit, and they desire to obey God. Amen? That's a demonstration of somebody who's truly in the faith, truly been regenerated. He's not talking about those who want to obey. He's talking about those who depend upon their own obedience to be made right before God. That is, to depend on their obedience for their own righteousness in order to be accepted by God, to be saved and be able to be born again. That's who he's condemning. So, uh, with, in essence, here's what he's saying. He goes, hey guys, to all of you who are depending on your good works to be saved, your obedience to the law, he goes, do you even understand what the law says? Have you even read it? And this is kind of like, you've heard somebody quote a scripture, somebody who you know is lost, somebody who's probably never stood foot in church, never read the Bible, and they quote a scripture, and you're like, yeah, clearly that verse does not mean what you think it means. And, and it's true, they don't. and Paul sits there and he goes, guys, you think that the law is teaching you to live by it. I'm telling you the law, if you would actually read it, is teaching you that this ends badly for you. And then this is when he gives his illustration. So let's look at the illustration, the illustration told. Look at verse 22. He says, for it was written, by the way, uh, before we get any further, this is, this is the hardest passage in all of the book. Uh, right here. And so if we can even get a little bit of this, we're doing pretty well. But by far the hardest text in the book of Galatians, and there's been some hard ones. Verse 22, he says, for it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. So in order to explain this, we got to go back, and I mean way back to the very beginning. Uh, From the very beginning of human history, God had a divine plan to save, to redeem, to restore, and to forgive sinful mankind. And his plan revolved around a Savior, uh, a Savior who would die for the sins of the world. And, and, and this Savior would come from the line of a man by the name of Abraham. We read about this in Galatians chapter 12. and Excuse me, in Genesis chapter 12. In Genesis chapter 12, God comes to Abraham. He chooses him out of all the people of the earth. And he comes to him and he says, I'm going to make you into a great nation. And all the nations of the world are going to be blessed through you and through your seed. This is what he meant. He goes, I'm going to, I'm going to give you a child. You're going to, you're going to be, uh, there's going to be a large group of people that are going to come through you, a whole nation. And he goes, and then through your line, through your lineage is going to come the promised Savior of the world to whom is going to save all people from every tribe, tongue, nation, and people group. And so that's what God's promise is. Now, that sounds great. There's only one problem. In order to be a father of a great nation, you at least have to be a father, right? You at least have to have a child. And this is the struggle for Abraham and for Sarah. They tried all their life to be able to have a baby, and it just wasn't happening for them. And so they tried and they tried and they tried. In fact, when God comes to them and promises them and tells Abraham, hey, you're, you're going to be a father, he goes into Sarah, into the tent, and says, hey, guess what? We're going to have a baby. This is so unbelievable. How does she respond? She laughs because they are old. 
Okay, I mean, we're talking old as dirt old. We're talking, you look at them, and, and, and she walks in with a cane, and she goes, you're about to have a baby, and everybody's like, <laughs> that's, a, that's a good one, all right? She's not believing this. Now, as, as impossible as it was, at least in their minds, to even get your minds behind this, the Bible did say that they did believe, and it was accounted to them as righteousness. Now, that's important. What I mean is, here's what they believed. They believed they were going to have a baby. They believed that it was going to be a great nation and that through their line was going to come the promised Messiah who would die for their very sins. Do you see this, that salvation is the same for those in the Old Testament as in the New? They look forward to the coming promised Messiah who would come and die for them to pay for their sins just as we look back as the promised Messiah who came and died and was buried and resurrected, right? So the same exact thing, they believed. So that's what makes them believers in Christ. And so as time goes by, you can imagine, a decade goes by, no baby, and as time goes by, that's what we have a hard time believing in the promises of God. And so they do what we often do is they believe that they have to help God out. Have you ever done that? Well, God needs a little bit of help with this, so let me go ahead and help him. Uh, he wants to bring a Savior, which is ultimately going to save me. So let me help him to save me. And so, um, so Sarah comes up to her husband and says, Look, you have a handmaiden by the name of, um, of Hagar. And she's fertile. Go into her. Uh, take her as your wife, if you will, and, and go ahead and have relations with her, and she'll have a child. And then at least technically we know that God's promise is secured through her, and everything will ultimately be okay. And so unfortunately, tragically, he does that very thing. He goes in, has relationships with this woman, and, and she does conceive a child, and the child is ultimately uh, born, and the child's name is Ishmael. And God comes to Abraham and he says, this is not the child of promise. This isn't the child of promise. This is not, it's not through his lineage that is going to come the Savior that I promised you. It is going to be through you and through your wife, Hagar. In other words, it, it is not going to in any way, shape, or, or form... Uh, going to be uh, any act of you, but it's going to be a supernatural act of me opening up the womb of your wife to bring about the child of ultimate promise. And Abraham really begins to beg, no, let, let, let Ishmael be that son, and he denies him. He says, this deliverance isn't going to be about what you do. It's a, going to be about what I do. And so that's the story. That's the illustration that he tells. Now, if you're confused... I'm sorry about what I'm about to do because it's going to get a lot more confusing from here on out. Here's the illustration explained. Paul actually explains it for us. Verse 24. Now, this may be interpreted allegorically. Now, I have to stop already. See how difficult it is already? And the reason for that is because some of you are like, hey, allegorically, that means nothing to me. Who cares about this? Some big, long, giant word. <clears throat> for some of you, though, that does mean something. For some of you who have studied hermeneutics, which is basically uh, the science of scriptural interpretation, Bible interpretation of what it means, uh, you know when you see the word allegory that that's a bad, dirty word, all right? Uh, uh, allegory is a method of interpreting the scriptures whereby you don't literally take, you don't take the Bible as literal fact. That is that these are actual uh, historical events that took place, but rather there are stories that were made up by a teacher in order to be able to help you and I understand deeper spiritual truths. 
okay? So it would be something like this. And in the Schofield Bible, and I know all of you are probably holding up your Schofield Bible, but in there he gets a little bit allegorical. In Genesis chapter 1, uh, in verse 16, it speaks about how God had placed uh, a greater and lesser light in the, in the heavens. Do you know what I'm talking about? In the context, it's creation. And basically we know he's meaning the sun and the moon. Is what he's talking about. And the whole point of that, when you just take it literally, is God is the creator of all things, including the sun and the moon. That's what the author's trying to get across. But in this commentary, what he ultimately says is, but we have to understand there's a deeper meaning to this. The greater light is Jesus, and the lesser light is the church. And so everybody's like, ooh, 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 how did he get that from that? Well, because when you weren't looking, he put it in there. That's how, that's how he did that, Right? And so, so, so everyone's like, wow, what an incredible insight. The problem is, it's like nailing jello to a wall. I mean, you look at anything and you're like, well, that has to do with this and that has to do with that. And there's no way really to be able to interpret it. Uh, another thing is, is if you don't think that the things of God that are written in the Word of God actually happen historically, then we're in trouble, according to Paul. Uh, what Paul says is he says, he says uh, he, like, for example, those interpreting allegorically look at the death, burial, and resurrection as, re- as resurrection as not being historical events. Why? Because a resurrection of a dead person is impossible. The point is God's just trying to teach us something, a deeper spiritual meaning. Yeah, you're right. He is trying to teach a deeper spiritual meaning that you and I are dead in our trespasses and sins, and he died for us and resurrected, demonstrating that the payment for our sin is paid. But if Jesus Christ did not actually physically die and resurrect, then Paul says, you and I are in big trouble. So this is not a way you want to interpret. So how are we to understand Paul when he says allegorically? Well, when he brings this out allegorically, he doesn't mean it in the same way that we do. Terms have a way of of changing. When he says allegorically here, he's speaking more of an analogy. He goes, hey, look, there's this point that I've been driving home to you. And now I'm going to use this as an illustration, this historical event, just to illustrate what my point is. Does that make sense? And so he lays it out here. And so uh, the question for us then is, uh, then what is his point? Uh, Okay, so this is what the Galatians are teaching. The Galatians, or or the, the Judaizers, they're teaching the Galatians this. Hey, we're so happy that you came to faith in Christ. That's wonderful. You're, you're almost a part of us. He goes, but if you really want the blessings of God, if you really want to be a child of God, then you have to become a child of Abraham as well. Remember the promise. All the promises come through Abraham and through his line. If you want to enjoy his promises and his blessings, you need to get in his line. And the only way to do that is to become like us, Jewish. You need to be circumcised and you need to follow all of the laws. You're almost there. Paul now turns around their argument. It's brilliant. He says, oh, you, you guys say that in order to be blessed by God, you have to be um, a, um, a, a son and, and a daughter of Abraham? Remember, that's what the Jews were always boasting. That, that was John the Baptist's problems. And he says, do not presume to yourself that you have Abraham for your fathers. And that's what they were always saying. You're right with God? Yeah, I'm in. I'm from the child. I'm from the lineage of Abraham. So here's what he says. You guys are right. You are sons of of Abraham. You came from that line. But that's not the question. The question is not who your father is. The question is, who is your mother? Who's your mother? And this is where he comes up with this. And so what he begins to do is explain that Abraham, remember the story, that there were actually two different lines. There were two different moms, if you will. There was Hagar and there was Sarah. And he goes, I know this is your dad. It was everybody's dad. But do you come from the line of Hagar or do you come from the line of Sarah? Listen to how he explains. Some of you 
very confused. I can't help you. I'm explaining an illustration. So just keep, keep in there. So he says, these women are two covenants. That, they represent two different covenants. One is from Mount Sinai bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now, Hagar is in Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her child. So he says, these two women who birthed two different sons, they represent two different covenants. Hagar represents the covenant that God give, gave his people at Mount Sinai. What covenant was that? The Mosaic Covenant. That was a, a covenant, just so that you know, is a, is a divine promise of God to his people. And he gives a divine promise, but this promise is, is conditional. What he says to them is, he says, hey, if you obey me perfectly, I will bless your socks off. But if you disobey me, what will God do? I will curse you. So it's up to you. Which is it going to be? Are you going to do right or are you going to do what is wrong? Now, here's what is important to understand. God didn't give them that covenant as a means for their salvation. God knew that they would never be able to keep those laws. He gave it as a tutor to them to show them that they could not be good enough, to show them that they needed a Savior, that they needed the grace of God, that they could never save themselves. But here's the thing. They were so full of pride that they were like, hey, right on. So all we have to do is follow what you tell us to do, and then we'll be accepted by you. We'll be a child of God. We'll experience all the blessings of God. We'll do it. Done. So they begin to try, and what happens? They fail. And they fail, and they fail, and they fail. And the more they fail, the more in bondage they get. Because they try to be right before God, they end up failing in their attempt to be right before God, which brings on more sin, more condemnation, and more judgment. So then they stand up again, brush themselves off, and say, I'm going to do better this time. Sound familiar? I'm going to do better this time. Only to fall and to stumble, and more judgment, and more condemnation, and more judgment of God falls on them. What are they in? They're in slavery. They're in a position of slavery. And what he tells them is, he says, this is exactly what Abraham did. Now connect it with Abraham again. Abraham decided that he was going to help God. God said, I promise that I'm going to give you a savior through a child, and then through that child is going to come a savior, which will ultimately save you. He said, okay, let me try to help you. Let me try to help you in my own salvation. So he takes on this woman, uh, Hagar, for himself, and then they have a child. But the question is, does that lead to freedom? No, it doesn't lead to freedom. Why? Because the mother, Hagar, was a slave. When she births an Ishmael, Ishmael, too, is in slavery. He's saying, guys, every time that you try by your own works to gain any type of salvation, the only outcome always and forever is bondage and slavery. And so this is what he's saying. He says they represent two different covenants, and they also represent two different Jerusalems. Isn't that great? We just need one more thing to make it more difficult. Paul's like, one, and Jerusalem. And so what is this Jerusalem? He says the present Jerusalem. Think about Jerusalem during this time that Paul's writing. What did it represent? Judaism. Everything that Judaism was about surrounded around that holy city of Jerusalem. All of, their, uh, all of their giving, all of their sacrifices, all of their festivals, all of their traditions that they rested on to save them. He goes, Hagar represents this present Jerusalem. Man's attempt by earning a right standing before God. It's human religion. And he says all of it leads where? All of it ultimately leads to slavery. Then he distinguishes that and he separates that with Sarah. He says, Hagar represents that old covenant. He goes, but Sarah represents the new covenant. It's an unconditional promise to you. 
It's a promise that God's going to save you, not based on what you do, but based on what, church? Based on what he does. He goes, I am going to uh, send a deliverer for you who will live the life that you cannot live and will pay a payment uh, of sin that you don't want to ultimately pay. And he'll satisfy my wrath towards you through that. Your death can't do that. I'm going to do all of this. You sit back, relax, and you wait upon me. And so he says, this is exactly what Hagar or, or Abraham and Sarah ended up picturing. Because Abraham ended up going into Sarah, however, not believing at the same time they had relations to, with, with one another. And then what happens? God does a supernatural work in Sarah to bring about life in Isaac, who eventually was the fulfillment down the line, was the Messiah who was ultimately going to come. And this is a picture of what? All of those who rest on the completed work of Jesus Christ. And then he says, what did this lead to? It leads to freedom. Why? Because the mother was free. Therefore, the child that was birthed from them was also free. Ishmael was free as well. He says, so this is the picture. Then he goes back and he says that this is also this idea of the church. This is not a church here, the present earth. He says, this is one from heaven. What does that mean? Religion is man's attempt to be able to gain right standing before God through all of his doings. Christianity, or this new Jerusalem, is about God initiating salvation to man and doing everything that is required, coming down to them and being able to save them. That's the difference between these two women. That's the difference between trying to earn salvation and being given salvation by grace through faith alone. And he goes on, and then he gives this last part of this illustration. If you notice this, he finishes up with actually a quote. He says, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud. You who are not in labor, for the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Again, how do we explain this? He's actually quoting from an Old Testament prophet, Isaiah. Isaiah was giving this prophecy when God's people were in captivity in Babylon. The immediate outcome or immediate meaning of that, um, that prophecy was this. He was telling the Jewish people that were in captivity, you're barren. You have no power to save yourself. He goes, but it's through your barrenness and your inability that I'm going to work, set you free, and you'll become a people once again back in Jerusalem once again. That was the initial thing. But you see what he's backing up? Same exact thing. On your own, you're barren. You cannot produce life. You cannot bring about life. It's only when you recognize your barrenness and your inability that I can then work to be able to set you what? Free. Now, here's the question for me and for you. How do we know? How do we know if we're really still enslaved to a works-based salvation or if you and I are truly living a free life in God through the gospel and through the completed work of Jesus Christ, how do we know? Let me just give you a couple examples of, of how we might recognize this. Uh, number one, uh, first of all, uh, if a person who is, is living by a works-based slavery, what do they look like? Well, they're difficult to live with. They're difficult to live with. Uh, a person who believes in some way that they are accepted by God because of their own good works and obedience is forever critical to those who are around them. They're a critical husband or a critical wife or a critical parent or a critical child. All they can ever do is point out what's wrong with everybody else. Why? Because they believe somehow that they've met God's standard, so they expect everybody else to meet the same standard as well. 
They think they've made it. Why in the world can't everybody else be as good as they can? And so they are harsh and they are critical and they are demanding of other people, constantly telling them to do better, do better, do better. There's no humility in them whatsoever because they have not yet come to understand the fullness of their sin and their need for the grace of God. Why? Because they feel like they have it all together. They walk around constantly like a judge, uh, walking around constantly telling everyone what is wrong and, and, and what must be done to fix it. We have folks in the church that are just like this. No matter what you do, there's always something else wrong. Have you ever noticed that? Have you ever gone up to someone, isn't it great that this is going on? Yeah, that's great, but don't forget that these other things are real troubling issues. These are other problems that we're really having. They can never, they can never be happy in anything it's always a problem. There's always negative. What is it? They've never truly tasted of grace. They're miserable to be around. I don't know about you. Here's why. The reason for that is because they only know God as judge. They only know God as judge. And here's the thing. You and I, who are believers in Jesus Christ, we know God as judge. He is a good judge. He is a just judge. He judges righteously. We also know that he is a judge that through Jesus Christ has declared you and I righteous, not because of our own righteousness, but because of Jesus Christ. So we love that judge, but we don't always look at him as judge. How do we look at him as Abba Father, as Daddy? It's just not fun to hang out with the judge all the time. It's not fun to, 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 be, to, for, to hang out with a person who's pointing everything wrong all the time. What's nice is to be able to be in that warm, affectionate relationship. And, and that's what those enslaved, they don't know anything about. Therefore, they often lack joy. Here's another uh, a marker of somebody who, who, who might be living according to these works. They're always down concerning their shortfalls. Always. I, I'm not speaking about biblical repentance, by the way. I'm not talking about somebody who's truly broken and they find out that they've sinned and the Holy Spirit works on them and they realize that, hey man, I've, I've just failed here. I'm just talking about this kind of insecurity that they carry around, feeling as though that they, they, they're never good enough, that they're never living up to a particular standard and, and they're always critical of themselves and there's, there's no joy in that. And oftentimes they're overly concerned with what other people think about them. Always trying to be able to live up to the standards that they believe that others have for them. Why? Because they have not come to truly understand that they have in fact been accepted by a holy, almighty God. It's the illustration that I gave a couple weeks back. Look, if you're accepted by Harvard, who cares if you're hedgehog material, right? Some of you remember that, some of you don't. If God in creation accepts you, again, not based on your goodness, but based on his son, then does it really matter if everybody else around you accepts you or not? And the reason they're constantly dealing with, you call it whatever it is, low self-esteem, whatever it is, is because they're still living by what? Works. Not by grace. That's why they're never joyful about what they do. Hey, look, I'm preaching, but I'm preaching to myself. Look, if you had to preach this, would you be confident getting it up, preaching it to you? No. You know what I did all week? This is terrible. This is going to be awful. I'm going to get up and everybody's just going to walk right out. Don't do it. But yeah, everybody's just going to walk right out. This is terrible. What am I doing at that point? I'm living by grace. I'm not sitting there and going, hey, I'm going to study this word and I'm going to get up in front of God's people. And I'm just going to try to deliver it to them. Just, just for the glory of God. No, I'm fearing man thinking that they're not going to like the way that I present something. What is that walking? Is that walking in grace? Or is that me trying to obtain my own righteousness, my own goodness, and my own acceptance by my own actions? 
Yes, that's exactly what it is. So there's no joy. And, and let me give you another one. It's often exhausting. It's often exhausting. Why? Because we are constantly working to be accepted by God through all that we do, through our many doings. There, we're never truly at rest. Uh, uh, there, there, there's always more to do. Uh, more that I have to do to, to, to please God, to, to make sure that I'm in the faith, to make sure that everything is okay, it's absolutely exhausting. You know, there's a huge difference in the energy in a person who is working for God's favor and the energy in the life of a person who is working from God's favor. Two completely different things. It's exhausting when you're sitting back going, I just got to get to church. I just got to do this. I just have to do all these things. If I could just do them, then God's going to be pleased with me. And maybe you don't even think about that, God pleased with me. It's just something I have to do. This is the right thing. This is what makes me right before God. It's completely different when a person goes, I don't have to show up. I don't have to give. I don't have to go. I don't have to tell. I don't have to work. I don't do any of those things. Jesus Christ has accepted me based on the righteousness of Christ and not my own righteousness. But there's something that does to my heart that energizes me now to go and to tell and to give and to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. Complete different between the two. You want to know what faith looks like? Faith oftentimes looks like waiting upon the Lord. Waiting upon him. Trusting in him. Me not trying to figure everything out. Have you ever had somebody say something awful or do something awful to you? Of course you have, right? Have I? No, I'm a preacher. Nobody ever says anything bad towards me. But let me just speak for you. If somebody comes after you and tries to come at you and tries to get you, God has a promise. He says, hey, man, he goes, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I'll take care of you. You don't have to take care of it. But you and I not wanting to wait, but wanting to just do things all the time to be able to make sure that everything is right. What do we do? We sit there, we go after that person instead of just resting in God. It's far more restful and free to live by grace than it is to ultimately live by works. Amen? He closes here. He actually gives the illustration. What time is it? I don't know what time it is. Anyway, and so they took the clock down. That must mean I can go forever. Oh, that's great. Okay. So let me, let me just give you this last thing. Here's, here's the application that Paul gives himself. Uh, the illustration applied. Look what he says. He says, Now you brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at the time that he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him, who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. But what does the Scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit the son of the free woman. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but we are free uh, women, or we are, free, we, we are of the free woman. Now, what is he talking about? In the beginning of that, he's referring, he's going back to the story of Hagar and Ishmael and Sarah and uh, Isaac. He's going back to that. And at the end of that story, what we find is we find that Ishmael, when he's 17 years old, at that point, Isaac is about three years old. And he's being weaned from his mama. And they're going through this kind of like celebration or something that they're holding for Isaac. And we don't know what he said or what he did. But the Bible says that, in essence, uh, uh, um, Ishmael began to mock um, Isaac and begin to mock him. And what Paul's doing is he's, he's actually quoting what, what, what Sarah said. Sarah actually said, cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit the son of the free woman. So he, she actually says, get her, get her out of here. 
We want nothing to be able to do with her. What does this teach us? What's the application he's trying to draw? I think number one is this. Uh, Paul is letting us know that those who live by grace and those who live by the law are never going to coexist. They're just not going to be able to do it. There's always going to be a rub. There's always going to be somebody who's sitting there trying to enjoy the freedom that they have in Christ and always somebody who's trying to kill that freedom against them. Somebody who's always trying to remind them of who they are uh, apart from Christ, by the law. And so they're always trying to separate that. And so, so this gives us, it teaches us a couple things. And you say, why is that? Because the person of the law who doesn't understand grace they want nothing to do with grace. Uh, one of my favorite musical, musicals is called Les Miserables. Have, has anybody seen that? All right, three. This should go over very well then. Um, it, the reason I love it is because it is a story of grace and law. There's a man by, by the name of Jean Valjean, and uh, Jean Valjean is, um, is a crook. He stole a loaf of bread to feed his, 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 his wife's children, and um, and uh, broke a window pane, did a bunch of other things, but that's in the musical. And he goes to prison, and he serves these 19 years. And Jean Valjean is kind of like the taskmaster. He's the policeman who sends him there, and he keeps reminding them after he pays his penance, he gets out, and he reminds Jean Valjean that you are a crook and you are a thief. So for, for that person, even though the man has now been set free, guess what? He's always going to remind him of who he was, a lawbreaker. And so here's what happens in the story. He meets a priest. He goes to the priest, and he actually steals from the priest. And the priest, instead of sending him to prison, actually extends grace upon grace, actually sits there and says, no, bro, you took my bread, and you took this, but you took my silver, but you, took the most, you forgot the most valuable things. Here's the, 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 the silver uh, candlesticks as well. He gives him grace upon grace upon grace. This radically changes this man's life. Instead of going out to thievery, he changes his life, and he begins to live in light of grace, helping others, loving others, declaring and demonstrating what grace looks like up towards other people. Here's what happens at, in, somewhere in, in the musical. Jean Valjean comes back up with Javert, and Javert is that, that legalist. And, and, and Javert it gets wounded in, in, in a battle. And so Jean Valjean comes by and he rescues him. And he saves this man, this man that was trying to kill him, this man that was trying to put him to death. He, he rescues him. And then in one part of the story where, where, where Javert begins to sing, he basically sings this. He's in essence going, if I have to live by the act of somebody's grace and I can't live by the law, then I want to die. I want to die. And he throws himself off a bridge. He commits suicide. That's the heart of somebody who does not know the grace of God. They do not want the grace of God. They would rather die in their sin by trying to make their self right than submit and, 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 and suggest that they are a sinner before God. And so that's the picture. That's why it can never ultimately get along. And so here's the other part of it. He goes to, to the Galatians and he says, because this won't mix... Never will. Didn't back with, with Isaac and Ishmael. It doesn't, in, it, it, it won't in the church either. He says, so those who are preaching a gospel other than the one that I've given you, so those are preaching any works-based salvation. He's talking about, in the context, he's talking about uh, those false teachers. He goes, you got to set them out. You got to set them out. See, this is an interesting thing because, you know, we're always in the church, and we're just going to sum up with this, and the church, we're always like, Come as you are, come as you are, come as you are. And that is exactly right. Would you agree with that? 
We want every sinner in Nassau County and around to feel free to be able to come. Yes? We want them to hear the gospel. We want to share with them with the gospel. We want all of that. It doesn't matter their background. It doesn't matter their sin. Why? Because we're all sinners saved by grace. They need the same grace that we sinners have needed and still need. Are, are we all on the same page? And so that's, that's what we all need. And then, but what happens is if, if somebody comes, and we, you got all these what are called open-handed and closed-handed issues in the church. Uh, open-handed are kind of like, ah, eh, so you believe in pre-trib, I believe in post-trib, oh, well, God will all work it out, right? You know, that kind of thing. I don't hate you because of that, all right? Okay, you believe in a little bit more of the, uh, of the miraculous signs. I don't believe quite, a, quite as much of those miraculous signs. It's okay. We, we, can, we can be okay. And why are we still okay in the midst of that? Because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because one of us, the close-handed issue above all close-handed issues, is that we are saved by grace through faith alone and not by works. And he says, so if anybody comes within a church teaching anything else, Christ plus anything, Christ plus good works, Christ plus church membership, Christ plus baptism, Christ plus anything else equals slavery. The only thing that unifies us is Christ plus nothing equals everything. You have everything in Christ with him. See, here's the argument between them. These men must have been furious that Paul was arguing with because basically their pride was the fact that they had stemmed from the physical line of Abraham, which made them right. And he goes, bro, it's not about your physical line. It's about your spiritual line. And because you believe that one can be saved because of what they do, you are from Hagar, not from Sarah. But even those Gentiles who were not born in the physical line, they can become children of Abraham and in the line of Sarah by repenting and placing their faith only in the completed work of Jesus Christ. So the question for you this morning is, what line are you? Are you truly clinging to Christ and Christ alone? To the fact that he died, he was buried, he raised on the third day, and that's enough. Or are you still clinging to something else to ultimately save you? Your work, your goodness as a husband, your goodness as a father, your goodness as a student. Uh, are you still intrepidated by, uh, under intrepidation by, by not living up to standards by those around you? It's all screaming out. You haven't understood what it means to be accepted by him by grace through faith alone. Embrace that. Embrace that. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you, we love you, and we worship you this morning. And God, what a difficult task this morning of working through the text of Scripture and just come to understand what it means. And God, I do not assume to be great at it. But God, I pray that you, through the power of your Holy Spirit, has revealed this truth to us, made it clear to us, and your Spirit has worked in us to help us to understand what it all means. Lord, I pray if there be any here who have clung to church membership or baptism or, 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 or their works or anything else, God, today will just be like, God, save me based on what you do. Today will be a great day of salvation. And for those who are in the faith, but Lord, they keep crawling back to that old work salvation. God, let them turn from that and return to the same joy, the same freedom that you gave them on the day of their salvation. We love you in your name. Amen. Let's stand. If you want to know more about this freedom that we have in Christ, I would love to share that with you, more about salvation. If you just want to pray, you just come and pray. This is just time for us to respond to God 
um, in light of what we've heard. So let's all do that now.